This is the Be Undomesticated Podcast. Domesticated podcast, folks. I am your host, Cody. Today is March 15th, 2023, and we have hit the big episode 10 1 0. So excited to be here! Awesome, awesome milestone to be able to hit. Uh, we're gonna talk about that real quick before we actually get into our podcast. Did a little bit of digging on like statistics that go into podcasts and things of that nature. Best I can tell, there's between 3 and 4 million podcasts currently in production, or currently available. 44% of them have less than 3 episodes available, and only 21% have made it to 10 or more episodes. So, we are in the top 21 percentiles. That's super exciting. I do want to apologize for my absence here over the last, I don't know, 10, 12 days, whatever it's been. It has been an absolutely insane couple of weeks for myself and my family and everything we've had going on so i do apologize for that anyways let's go ahead and move on to our actual podcast today today we are talking all things gardening after my long ranting raving episode last time we're gonna go back to something more lighthearted and fun um i do anticipate this to be a much longer podcast i have a lot of notes that we're gonna go through going to be a lot of information. I'm going to touch on a lot of things and kind of get your brain moving and thinking about this upcoming growth season and hopefully give you some ideas or things to look further into that might be able to help you in your next gardening year. A lot of this stuff is going to be kind of basic, straightforward things that a lot of more advanced and seasoned gardeners might not take as much away from, but hey, you know what, it's never a bad idea to get a refresher course and kind of talk about things, think about things, and sometimes maybe we glance over things that we've been doing for so long that we don't even think about it anymore, and maybe there's a different way to look at it or to try to accomplish something. So I hope that you'll listen to it, even if you are an experienced gardener, and maybe you'll pick up a couple tips and tricks, and if you can think of something that I've missed or that you would like to add to this episode, find us on Facebook, find us on MeWe, find us on Twitter, and make a post and let's see what we can get going with the conversation on this. I think it could really be beneficial to a lot of people. Anywho, what are we going to talk about today? Today we're going to talk about all things garden planning. We're going to talk about the different types of garden beds. We're going to look into different places that you can try to find seeds and seedlings. Uh, what else? What else? What else? We're going to talk about briefly kind of what to plant where. We're going to talk about a couple of different things that have to do with gardening and trying to improve your garden area or enhance the season that you're able to have, elongate the season that you're able to have and able, in order to grow more for longer. But before we get into the actual planning parts of it, let's go ahead and touch on some reasons why you should be gardening, why you should increase the size of your garden and all of that. Um, right out the gate, it's climate friendly. I'm not shipping food all over the place. You're not getting your tomatoes out of Ecuador and all of that. You know, that's absolutely fantastic. You're going to help build the soil in your gardening areas if you do it correctly. 
There are ways that you can destroy your soil. There are terrible ways that you can garden at home if you're dumping crap loads of fertilizer and pesticide and herbicide onto everything. But we're not going to do it that way because that is not going to help you in the long term. Gardening really is just a fantastic family activity. Um, you can get your wife, your kids, everybody out there helping out, whether it's with the planting part of it or with the weeding part, thinning of the seeds, thinning of plants, you know, get your kids out there eating things fresh out of the garden. My daughter, when she was two years old, was out wandering around helping us pick green beans, picking tomatoes, and just she just had a blast with it. One of the biggest problems we had with that was that she kept eating everything we were trying to pick, or she would take a bite out of it and then chuck it over the fence for the chickens to eat because she thought that was funny. So you kind of got to keep an eye on little kids, but it's a great way to get everybody outside involved in an activity together and try to build that, that family bond. Not only is it good for your family, but it's also good for you on a personal basis. It's going to help you mentally to kind of refocus, recharge. There's been a ton of studies and things done talking about how being in contact with nature and growing your own food is just absolutely great for you mentally. Look into that. It's surprising what all that actually does for your mind. It helps you physically because even if you have you know a sedimentary life where you're at work all day at a desk or what have you, if you're doing a garden, you're able to get out there, get moving, get your hands dirty, and actually, you know, be outside, be in nature. I think that's really important. Tying into that part, we're going to talk about how it's emotionally great for you. It can really help you to kind of block out all the other crap that's been going on in your life. Just focus on growing plants, growing your food, growing your flowers, and really just get to where you're Focus solely on what you're doing. Be very present and be in the moment, and that'll help you to kind of clear your mind mentally and help you to get your emotional crap under control because everybody goes through that. So this is a way that you can really try to harness the power of what you have inside of you to be able to get that under control. You can save a bunch of money by growing your own fruits, vegetables at home. Um, I tried to get some really hard facts and figures on what people have been spending on their own produce throughout the past couple of years. It's impossible to get up-to-date figures. The best you can do is kind of 2019 back in those days, you know. Um, unfortunately, I don't know if you've been to the grocery store lately, but prices are way higher than they were in 2019. So I can't really go off of those facts and figures. I know for myself and my family, we spend upwards of $100 a week just on fresh produce. And we're only three people. One of us is a three-year-old. So for those with bigger families, that's got to be an astronomical amount of money that you're putting into your groceries and going into the produce department because that's one of the most expensive places to buy your food. But you know what? You can go and you can grow that head of lettuce. You can grow that broccoli. You can grow all these things that you're currently buying and save a ton of money doing that. Along those same lines, you can make money doing it. You can start a farmer's market stand. You can start a roadside stand. You can sell to your friends and neighbors. You know, everybody's going to be able to grow a lot more than they'll actually use. So take that surplus and give it away, sell it. You know, even if you're giving it away, you're building that social capital that's so important these days. So even though it might not be monetary, at least you're still getting something out of that, you know, Build those relationships, build those connections with people, and it's going to go a long way for you. Generally, when people talk about gardening, they think about, you know, the old school plot of ground that's all rotilled up, and that's your garden. 
Well, it doesn't have to be that. You can utilize a ton of random spaces around your property, around your house, to grow gardens, grow food. You know, up against your house, a lot of times people have, you know, landscape rock, things of that nature. Find a plant, find a flower that'll grow there and grow that. You don't have to be growing only food. There's a ton of different things that you can grow. We're going to touch on that in the next section here. But look at different places around your property and try to think outside the box. See what you can do. Don't just have grass. You know, grow something besides grass. Kind of along those same lines is going to be try to incorporate different things into your landscaping around your property. Everybody wants to have the beautiful house with the beautiful, you know, flower garden next to the house and all of that. So that's great. And try to improve the actual value of your property by doing it. You know, like I said before, don't just grow grass. Grass doesn't look near as nice as all the pretty flowers growing up there fresh next to the house. Um, if you have trees, you can build kind of small guilds around those trees with different flowers, different plants. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be flowers. You can put herbs out there. You can put so many different things. You know, really let your imagination run wild with it. And I think you'd be kind of excited about what you're able to come up with and what you're able to try. Going down that thought process of using your landscaping and using your lawn to be able to grow your gardens, I went and did a little research. The average lawn in the United States is about 10,000 square feet. Doing some more research, in order to feed a family of four, you're going to want between 600 and 800 square feet per person in that family. So you could have, you know, a 2,400 square foot garden feeding your entire family of four for an entire year and still have three quarter of your lawn left to go. So you're not going to give up all of your grass just to be able to grow food or just to have your gardens. Okay, so what are we actually going to grow in our gardens though? So a lot of people, again, will just kind of think of vegetables or they just think flowers. So I'm going to go through a list here pretty quick about different things to kind of keep in mind and think about that you might be able to incorporate into your garden area or into your landscaping that could provide not only with food or pollination or things of that nature, but also really improve the beauty of your home and your homestead. Let's start with the obvious one that everybody thinks of when they think gardens vegetables. So you're wanting to have vegetables, you know, what do you eat? What do you use in the kitchen? We're going to touch on that much more here in a little bit, so I'm not going to get too deep into it. But besides what you eat, look and see what grows well in your area. You know, you can't be up here in the wonderful state of Michigan trying to grow pineapple. It's not going to work very well for you. I guess you can if you really put a lot of effort into it and have a greenhouse and everything. But you know, in all reality, you're not up here in Michigan growing pineapple. So look into what grows well in your area and grow that. When thinking about different vegetables that you want to grow, make sure you're keeping space in mind. If you only have a tiny little area to be able to grow in, pumpkins and squash are really not your, your forte. You need to be looking towards more compact vegetables that are going to give you a high yield. Think, you know, green beans, think tomatoes, think those sorts of items, you know. Things that don't find out quite so much. Other than vegetables, kind of keep track of what types of fruit that your family enjoys eating. I know here in Michigan, it's really nice to have all the fresh berries and everything. They grow very well up here. Um, I, we don't grow pineapples. We don't grow bananas. You know, those are tropical fruits. They're not going to make it up here in the state of Michigan. But apples, we can grow the crap out of apples. So kind of keep track of what you guys eat. That's really going to be the most pivotal part of this is 
keeping track of what you eat and using that to kind of base what you plant. Um, with the different fruits, you know, raspberries, blackberries, blueberries, they're all bushes. So if you have spaces against your house that you want to have these kind of things that you want to put something bigger in, or say you want to have a berry patch, I'd love to have a berry patch. We're working on trying to get that started here at our house. You know, find that space. They're going to take more room, but one of the wonderful things about them is you don't have to plant them every year. They're perennial. They're awesome that way. Speaking of perennials, do not overlook them. Oh my goodness gracious. So trees, bushes, asparagus, rhubarb, Jerusalem artichoke, regular artichoke, horseradish, all of these are perennials that you can plant. And as long as you don't kill them, they'll just come back year after year after year. So keep those in mind and maybe have a designated area that you put your perennials into. I know horseradish can grow like crazy and spread like crazy. So, you know, keep that in mind. Same with Jerusalem artichoke. I don't know how well that would do in our climate, but I'm sure that, you know, down south, it's wonderful. You know, Tennessee, I hear they grow the crap out of Jerusalem artichoke. So do a little digging in your area and see what kind of perennials are able to grow in your gardening space that will just keep coming back, keep producing for you with less and less effort as time goes on. Like I said, really keep in mind those fruit trees, those bushes, things of that nature, because fruit is a really high dollar item when you go to purchase it in stores. So the more of that you're able to produce yourself, the more you're going to save when you go to the grocery store. Next is one that I know my wife really wants, and I need to actually put some effort into maybe doing something with this year, is have an herb garden. Have a garden close outside your door to where you can go out and harvest fresh herbs to be able to use in your cooking. You know, figure again, you need to keep some sort of diary of what you're eating in order to figure out what herbs you should really be growing. I know for us, it would be a lot of cilantro, it would be basil, be things kind of like that because that's what we use the most of. We use a ton of cilantro in our house. I don't know if I could make enough or grow enough cilantro for what we eat in our house, but every little bit would help and every little bit would help cut down on that grocery bill. But when you're coming up with the plan for your herb garden, don't stay in the box of just food. Kind of think outside the box. You know, do you enjoy tea? You can grow a bunch of different herbs for tea. You know, your spearmint, your peppermint, your bee balm, your lemon balm, all those awesome for teas. Tinctures, things of that nature, like lip balms, stuff like that. Comfrey, again, with the, lip, or the bee balm and the lemon balm. All of these are just awesome plants for you. Help really repair your repair your body and help you to stay healthy. One last thing on herbs that I would recommend is try to figure out what's growing around you wild and local. You might not actually have to grow everything. You might be able to go and source it from, you know, public land somewhere close by. Try to make sure they're not spraying it with whatever crazy crap they got going on. But it would save you and the effort of having to grow it at your own house if you're able to source it really close and local. Last but not least on our list of things that you could be growing in your garden we're going to talk about today is flowers and pollinator attractors. All gardens need pollinators. I don't care if you have a perennial garden, if you have a annual garden, vegetables, herbs, all of that. You have to have pollinators. Otherwise, your vegetables are not going to produce. You're just going to get flowers. They won't be pollinated will not turn into the delicious veggies that everybody is looking for. 
flowers really add a ton of beauty to your property. Um, that really spark of color that you're going to get, that smell that you're going to get. It's all really nice to be able to enhance your um, experience when you're out in the great outdoors, when you're outside doing things around your property. It's going to be way nicer for you to have that wonderful smell of lavender, have the smell of those flowers next to you, instead of just, you know, your grass or the mud or whatever you have going on there. So why not take advantage of that space that you have, improve the look of your property, improve everything, draw on the pollinators, and really just make it a nicer experience for you and your family while you're outside. Another thing you can do with flowers is once you've done the research into it, you can find flowers that will actually repel pests and repel like deer and rabbits, things of that nature. You can plant those around the outside of your garden and try to help keep any of the pests out of your garden that you've been dealing with. And just because it's a flower doesn't necessarily mean that you can't eat it. There are a bunch of flowers that are edible and will add a really high level of sophistication to all your cooking when you're using them. So do a little research and see what you can find that you can kind of lump into all of those categories. It can really be a creative and fun thing to work on. Let's talk a little bit about what you should be planting on your property. Um, again, keep a journal about what you and your family eat for an entire month. That would be a really good baseline to start with. Figure out, you know, how many onions you ate, how many bell peppers you ate. Did you eat bell peppers? Did you eat onions? Maybe you don't like onions, so why would you grow 100 onions if you don't enjoy onion? Um, same thing with green beans, things of that nature. You know, really keep track of what you are eating and use that as your baseline to start growing. Like I said, though, baseline. Do not use it as the end-all, be-all list of what you're going to grow because you want to try different things. You want to try new and exciting things. That's how we figure out different types of food that we enjoy eating. So go online. Look through the Baker Creek catalog. Look through your local nurseries, see what they're growing, what they have available to you, and be adventurous with it. Try something new, try something fun, and see if it takes, see if it works. Worst case scenario, you're out a little bit of money to be able to get everything set up and the time that you have into it. But best case scenario, you find your new favorite food, and you have expanded your knowledge about how to grow things. Okay, so that'll kind of give you an idea of what you want to grow, but... Where are you going to plant all these things? So we've talked about, you know, your landscaping. We've talked about how you should try to utilize as much of your yard as you can to be able to grow various things. But what are the different types of garden beds that people can be using or ways of gardening that people can use? So I have a couple of different ones that I'm going to kind of break down here real quick, and then we will move on. So right out the gate, we're going to talk about the standard, the garden plot. This is what, again, most people think of when they think of gardening. It's just a big old square in your backyard or your front yard that you have utilized to grow your produce in, grow your flowers in. Um, some of the pros of this, it's a traditional garden. I mean, it's been working for time immemorial. You need less water with a standard garden bed than you would need on any sort of portable or raised bed. Um, it's the cheapest route. You literally just need dirt. You don't have to have anything else to be able to start get started with it. Um, it'll allow you the ability to improve the largest soil footprint with this method. Um, trying to improve the soil with a raised bed, it's kind of confined to the size of the raised bed. Whereas with this, you have a much larger footprint that you're working on. Some of the downsides of having a garden plot, though, 
not as accessible. So if you have physical challenges that you're trying to work with, not really going to want to be bending over all day, probably not the way to go for you. It does take more work because you have so much more space that you have to focus on. And due to that, it's also going to take a lot more inputs. So whether it's your compost, whether it's your mulch, whether it's whatever, water, it's going to take more to get everything to that point compared to, say, a raised bed where you have a four foot by eight foot space that you're working on. Next up is the raised bed. Everybody knows what a raised bed is. I don't have to go into it. They can be made out of wood or out of metal, um, anywhere from about a foot tall to three feet tall, four feet tall, however tall you want to make them. The taller you make them, the more stuff you have to put in them, so keep that in mind. Um, great because you don't have to bend over. If you have a three foot tall bed, you can pretty much work without bending over, so that's fantastic if you're kind of physically challenged, not able to do as much stuff that way. It's really the way to go. You're going to have less weeds. You're going to have less pest pressure. So your bunny rabbits are not getting up on a four-foot raised bed to eat your carrots. They look really nice. I love the look of a raised bed. Honestly, if I could go all to raised beds, I would just because of the look. But where we're at, we have really good soil, and it's not financially there right now to be able to build a bunch of raised beds to be able to offset the size of the garden plot that we have. So... We're going to stay where we are with the garden bed, but the raised beds just look so fantastic if they're done right. If they're done poorly, they don't look very good. But if you take the time, take the effort, put the financial backing behind it, you can get it to look really nice. The downsides of the raised bed, though, like I already touched on the one, they're much more expensive to get going. You have to have, you know, the wood, you have to buy the metal raised beds. So you're going to have more money into them right out the gate. They do overheat easier as well because the soil will heat up faster, which is a bonus when you're trying to start everything in the spring. You can actually start your raised beds generally before you be able to start your standard beds. But you have to watch that as the year goes on. You're going to have more chances for it to overheat. And it's going to take a lot more water because it doesn't hold the water quite as well as you would with your traditional in-ground system. They have a lot more exposure from the sides. So you're going to lose water that way. So just keep that in mind. So we talked about our raised beds. Let's talk a little bit about in-ground beds. So when I think of an in-ground bed, what I think of is going to be rows, I don't know, between four and six feet wide and running more lengthwise that you're planting in and then having kind of a grass pathway in between those rows. So you're able to mow in between them or maintain in between them and still have your garden beds. So they're not going to be raised, they're just going to be like a standard garden plot, except kind of long and skinny. Really nice because, like I said, you can mow in between it, you can kind of get that, a little bit of that raised bed look without having the raised bed money into it. A couple things to keep in mind with it, though, is with the grass running in between the different beds, you have it where the grass is going to start growing back into your garden beds. So you're going to have to do kind of some annual upkeep, maybe even monthly upkeep on that to be able to keep it down. Um, it's not as physically accessible as the raised beds. Obviously, it's just like the big garden plot, you know, you're going to have to bend over to be able to do things. So again, if you're not physically able of doing that thing, that kind of thing, then maybe this isn't the way to go for you. Last but not least on the list of different types of beds is going to be portable ones. So, these are not going to be full-size beds, 
these are going to be more like, you know, your grow bags or buckets that you can grow in. I actually saw a really cool setup the other day where they have five gallon buckets and a two by four framework. And I think I actually might build something, maybe a smaller scale. I think they had 15 buckets on there. So I'm going to go a little bit smaller scale and just kind of see what I can do. See what I could play with with that. I think it'd be kind of a neat little project to work on this year. Um, they're easy to move, easy to transport. So say you put them out there and, oh no, you're getting a really late frost. Well, guess what? You grab your five-gallon bucket and you stick it in your mudroom and it avoids the frost. So you don't have to worry about that. You know, if you're in a rental of space that you're not able to have a garden bed outside, this is a really good way. You can get, obviously, I mean, everybody knows about the planters and fancy things you can go to the garden centers and get. So you can make it look really cool if you want to put that money and effort into it. But it doesn't have to be that. It can be a five-gallon bucket with some holes drilled in it. And plant in that, you know, don't be stuck in a, I have to have a quote-unquote garden in order to grow food and grow these things for you. You don't have to do that. You can find ways around it and make it work for you. And let's say that, you know, you decided you want to grow something, but you don't know where exactly where you want to put it. Maybe the portable is the way to go. You can start out and have your garden in a space and see if that's where you want it to be. You can move it around after that. It's much, much harder to move the garden bed that we have in our backyard than it is to move a couple of five-gallon buckets around because I didn't want them where I ended up putting them. It's one thing with our garden, you know, I would move it around now if I had the chance, but it's way too late for that. So keep in mind, you can kind of move it stuff around. It's more modular. You know, if I have a five-gallon bucket framework where I have 10 five-gallon buckets, you know, I can move things around in that. I can yank something out that's died and put something new in its place much easier. Whereas if it was a in the ground garden, if you have a bunch of green beans and one of them dies, I can't really throw a tomato in there. It's going to look weird. It's going to be all out of place. But with the five-gallon buckets, I can move things around and make it work for me to be able to replace those things and continue with my succession planting in order to keep that stuff going. So when you're trying to plan out your new garden, make sure you're keeping all these different things in mind. You have to think about all of them at the exact same time. You can't just put all emphasis on what you want to grow or where your garden bed's going to be. You have to think about all of them together because if you build, you know, a planter system with the five-gallon buckets like I talked about, it's not going to be ideal for growing, you know, pumpkins or squash. But maybe it is ideal for growing green beans. So keep that kind of stuff in mind. You have to have to think about it all as one giant system instead of individual parts. Along with that, you also have to keep in mind your budget because if you can't afford the $1,000 worth of wood for the raised bed, then you can't build the raised bed. And don't forget to add flowers to all of your areas. You want to bring in those pollinators. This is something we're going to be focusing on more this year as well at our homestead is trying to get more pollinators into our gardening area, into our systems to be able to try to improve the pollination rate that we're getting on our various vegetables and plants and all of that. So let's say you've figured out what you want to grow, you have your beds all planned out, now you just have to source your seeds and your seedlings and all of that. So like I talked about before, going online and trying to find different things to grow that look appealing to you, you know, in order to channel that inner creativity into your garden. Obviously, you're going to know where to find those. If, if you went to Baker Creek and found something that you really thought looked great, that's where you're wanting to order it from. But just thought I'd throw a couple of different ideas out there for you. Um, online, one that we found this year, we've known about in the past, but we've never ordered from him. 
uh, is M.I. Gardner. He's based here out of Michigan. He has really affordable seeds. Um, caveat to that, you don't get as many seeds in a packet as you do with, say, Burpee. But, you know, it is a really affordable type of seed. And I really love, you know, trying to help out a small company like that, especially one based here in my state. Catalogs. Catalogs are a great spot to find things. You know, Baker Creek obviously has the gold standard of catalogs. If you know anything about gardening, you're going to know about Baker Creek's catalogs. Um, even if you don't, go to their website and look at it. They have two catalogs. They have one you can buy that is like 200-something pages, I think. And they have another smaller one that they'll send you for free. Just order that smaller one. It is a work of art. It is absolutely fantastic. You will be shocked when you see it. Everyone who looks at it's like, wow, they did a lot, really good job of taking pictures and photographing their plants and the produce that come from them. So look into that. Another one catalog that you can get, um, they don't do as well with the pictures and stuff, but they're affordable, is seeds and such. So look them up. Um, it never hurts to have a couple of different ideas of where to get seeds from. Last but certainly not least, and probably the most accessible for a lot of people, are going to be your local grocery stores, you know, your Walmart, up here we have Meijer, um, and your local hardware stores, Ace, True Value, different mom and pop places. Those are going to be a really easy way to go get different seeds. You're not going to have as much variety with like Walmart or Meijer. But I will tell you that the Ace that we have at our in our local town here has some really cool different seeds that I've picked up a bunch of different ones from them, and I'm excited to be able to try it out. So check out your local area and see what you can find at these different stores that you might not traditionally think of when you think of buying seeds. But maybe, you know, it's your first year and you don't want to mess around with trying to start seeds, or maybe it's not your first year and you just don't want to mess around with trying to start seeds. Try to find local nurseries to you. I would recommend, you know, more mom and pop type places rather than trying to find big box stores. You can buy a lot of seedlings at, you know, Lowe's and Home Depot, Walmart, all that. Don't know if you're going to get the quality that you're really looking for compared to the local nurseries and grow areas that you're able to get them from. So look around. I know for us, we have one around about 10 miles from our house. It's just absolutely ginormous. They do a really good job with their seedlings and we will probably be getting whatever we're not able to get started on our homestead from them. All right, before we start to wind down and get into our quote and verse of the day and everything, I have a bunch of just miscellaneous thoughts and ideas for gardening and things that I should touch on that we're going to jump right into. So right off the gate, we're going to talk about trellises. Trellises are a fantastic way to add more usable space to the area that you're working on instead of growing out you can grow up so you know your green beans your sweet peas your cucumbers your squash all of these summer squash you do a winter squash too i guess but you know anything that's vining quite often as long as it's not producing large fruit you're not putting you know a 25 pound watermelon vine hanging off the trellis but you know the cucumber works really well on the trellis so think outside the box that way it adds a level of verticality to everything, adds a really nice kind of look to it. I love the look of a good trellis, so try to keep that kind of an idea in mind and don't limit yourself by only thinking of what you can grow on the ground. Maybe you've decided you're just wanting to jump all in on the whole gardening and growing your own food plan. 
um, look into growing, starting a greenhouse, you know, build your own greenhouse at your house. Obviously, it's going to take a ton of dedicated space, but it will extend your grow season by a lot. You're going to be able to do a quite a bit more with your own seed starts, things of that nature. But again, it's expensive and it is a permanent part of your property once you build it. So keep that in mind and really think it through before you jump right into that. Kind of along those same lines, but on a less grandiose scale, are going to be like your hoop houses and row covers. These are both great ways to extend your grow season and are much more affordable compared to a full-on greenhouse. Especially the row cover. I mean, if you don't know what row cover is, look it up. It's kind of like a mini, mini hoop house that goes over like a row of plants. So a lot of people use it for greens to be able to extend the green season into into early winter into midwinter depending on where you are um if you're far enough south honestly you could use it and extend your growth season all the way through and not have a non-growing season so look into those kind of things and see what works in your area one thing that we're really needing to do around our homestead here is to keep better records um keep records of all of what you've worked on what you tried to grow what worked great what didn't grow at all you know what your weather was like did it rain a lot? Was it dry? Temperatures? That kind of thing. Uh, first and last frost dates are really important to know. Um, obviously, you can look up all the historical data for yourself, but it's going to be really nice for your microclimate for your homestead to be able to have that information and build yourself a growing guide for your own property as you move forward. One thing that we didn't touch on when we were talking about the raised beds was how to fill the raised beds, what to put inside of them. Didn't touch on that because I don't have any experience doing that because I don't have any raised beds. Um, I will say that it's kind of a crapshoot trying to do it reasonably affordably. You're going to have as much into filling your raised bed as you had into actually building the raised bed, if not more. So keep that in mind. Um, a lot of people use what's called cuticulture when they're building like a, almost a mound. So you'll throw like logs and stuff like that in there. I, again, I didn't do a bunch of research because I'm not planning on doing this for my own homestead. But I thought I'd put that bug in your ear that maybe it's something to look into that might work well for you. And one last little tip that I came up with here for planning your actual garden layout out is make sure that you're thinking about where the sun's going to be and what kind of shadows that's going to cast. So for us here in Michigan, you know, we're not going to want to put our tomatoes and corn on the south side of our garden because it's going to block all the sun so if we're trying to grow radishes and carrots and potatoes things like that you know we're going to want those on that south side so that way they're getting the more direct sun and they're not blocked out by the taller plants however inversely if you're further south where you have more of an issue with it being hot all the time and the sun really killing everything maybe you want to try to shade those things out and try to give them a better chance of growing so you're going to have to do a little research. It's not something I'm going to be able to blanket, give you a you know statement that's going to work for you because every area is different, but it's something to think about. I lied. I have one more tip and trick that we're going to actually dive a little bit deeper into before we really move on. And that's going to be talking about whether you should rototill or not rototill. So real quick, we'll run through, you know, pros and cons of each. And then I'm just going to kind of give my anecdotal experience and we'll leave it at that. So with rototilling, gonna have really nice fluffy soil on top to be able to work with. Um, you're gonna have less weeds in the beginning because you're rototilling them all down inside. 
unfortunately, because you're rototilling, the way it works is that top six to eight inches are going to be nice and fluffy, but the parts under that are actually going to get compacted down more. So you're going to have that top little bit that's going to do better, and then underneath that, you're not growing soil very well. It's hard work to rototill every year. It really is. Um, the first year is obviously the worst, but even after that, it's not a fun task. It's going to leave you bruised, battered, and broken. So trying to do it no-till is a lot easier physically on your body than getting the crap kicked out of it by an old Toro. Comparing that to the no-till method where you're not rototilling every year, you're not getting the crap kicked out of you every year by a rototiller, you're not compacting that soil down further, um, it's going to make it a lot easier to plant because you're going to be able to just move your mulch aside, put your plant in, put your seed in, and then whether you want that mulch back up next to it or not, you can do it by hand. You don't have to have a trowel. You don't have to have anything. If you mulch properly, it's amazing how moist and easily pliable that soil stays. Speaking of moist, the soil in a no-till garden bed with a lot of mulch is way more moist than our tilled garden bed ever was. It's a night and day difference that you wouldn't believe until you actually see it. That being said, it does require you to put a lot more mulch down. So you're going to have more money into mulching, but you're not losing the time that you have into trying to do the rototilling method. Um, same way, you're going to have to fight with more weeds in the spring than you would with rototiller, because if you rototilled everything down, because if you rototilled everything down, obviously you don't have to try to go through and weed that out. And it'll save you a lot of water. You're going to have way more water retention with the heavy mulch method. Whether it's heavy mulch on a rototill bed or on a non-tilled bed, the heavy mulch is a really nice thing to do. Um, we love it for our no-till beds. We rototilled for the first couple of years here at our homestead, and it was miserable. The, especially the first time, we have a very hard clay soil. So that first time, trying to do it with a walk-behind rototiller just beat the crap out of me. I was three days in, and it was absolutely miserable. Um, the second time we did it, we actually got my dad with a rototiller on the back of a tractor over here and did it that way, and that was much easier, obviously. But again, you know, that's not something we want to do every year. To try to rent that was over $400. You know, we're going to have $400 just into rototilling our garden every year really cuts into the trying to save money by having a garden fund. So keep that those things in mind. You know, whether rototilling is right for you or not is kind of up to your personal discretion. For myself and our homestead, our garden, it is not for us. We much prefer the no-till method, but results may vary. All right, that's going to bring us to our quote of the day. Our quote today is by a woman named Gertrude Jekyll. She was a gardener and a horticulturist from the UK back in the 1800s into the early 1900s. She's actually credited with starting over 400 gardens in the UK and in the US. So her quote is, a garden is a grand teacher. It teaches patience and careful watchfulness. It teaches industry and thrift. And above all, it teaches entire trust. I mean, right there, <laughs> there it is teaches patience. You have to wait and be patient for your seedlings and seeds to grow and to produce fruit. Teaches careful watchfulness because if you have a large pest problem going on that you have to take care of or you have a lack of pollinators that you try need to try to make up for, that kind of thing, you need to be watching. If you have a blight issue starting, you need to be watching. 
teaches industry. I mean, you're saving money, you're making money with this. Teaches you to be constantly working on your area, whether you're doing, you know, a half hour here, half hour there, hour here, hour there, you know, you have to put the time and effort into that garden and you're going to see the results paid back in dividends. And then it teaches thrift. I mean, like we talked, the cheaper you can do it, the better off you're going to be. If you're spending $400 for the rototiller every year, you're not going to be saving very much money on it. But if you're spending $80 in seeds and you're saving $1,000, you're saving quite a bit of time. You're saving quite a bit of money and really trying to invest that back into yourself, not to mention all the emotional and physical and mental benefits that you get from having that garden. Our verse of the day is from Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens men's hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their heart. I think those verses just kind of speak for themselves. So we're going to go ahead and wrap on up here. Um, thank you so much for listening through all of my woes and everything we have had going on here with our 10 episodes now of the Be Undomesticated podcast. I'm super excited about that. Again, thank you guys so, so, so much. Make sure that if you have any questions, comments, concerns, go ahead and email me at beundomesticatedpod at gmail.com and look us up on social media. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on MeWe. Um, not super active on there, but once we start building the community up, it's going to be super, super awesome. So I look forward to trying to meet everybody through there and just kind of building this community around the beyond domesticated lifestyle planning and being free. The only other thing that I ask of you is that if you have enjoyed the work that we've done around here with the different podcasts, everything from business stuff to homesteading stuff, entrepreneurship to just what's going on in my life and on my homestead, please share it with a friend and, you know, see if they're interested in it. Maybe they're not, but who knows? Maybe they are. So thank you again, and thank you so much for being part of this journey to 10 episodes. Thanks for listening, and until next time, remember, be undomesticated.